When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, Stuck Who You Here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Oh man, okay, so it, it's been a bit of a fun one here, very busy. Oh my god, so many different projects, so many different, well, everything that we've been working on. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by the time you all hear this, at least those of you who are not patrons, which, hint, 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 uh, patrons get early access to all podcast episodes, when this one goes up this Friday, I think that there will be some very big and exciting news that I'm hoping to be able to share with all of you at that time. Anyway, today's topic, crusades, or at least kind of crusades. Remember what we were talking about last time, Gabby? That was the third crusade? Yeah. Okay, so the thing is, the thing is about crusades is that they are, I mean, it's a really big event. They are Not even just a singular event, really big events, like there's a lot of them, eight of them, but I, I know a lot of you were expecting after last week when we did the third crusade that we were going to jump straight into the fourth. But if you recall what I said at the time, I said that we've covered a lot of the European aspects of it just in depth, which I mean, to be fair, that's natural as this is the crusades. It, like it, it literally is something that primarily is going to focus on the European perspective. But we've only glanced at a number of the different Muslim rulers and their politics of the era from the other side, because they did very extensive stuff, and there are so many names. I get asked about them a lot as well, like on those lives. That, that's some of the most awkward moments that I actually think there at that time, which is unfortunate because someone will ask me something, and it takes me like a second to really try and remember who it was because it's not something that is the norm for me. And I'm hoping that through more podcasts, through more everything, that not, it, it's not just me showing you all fun stories. It's also, I'm helping myself to learn even more things about more places as well. Like, I learned more stuff about the topic of today's recording. I'm, I almost want to say video every time. But I learned a lot more about today's subject than I ever actually had known in my research, like while I was preparing all these notes and different things because I wanted to teach you all about it. And like when it comes to these Muslim rulers, I don't think it's fair that there are so many different people that we could go in depth on, but we just don't. Because last week, if you recall, we talked about Richard the Lionheart, but his great rival of the East was a man by the name of Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, better known in the West as Saladin. Now, uh, before we get into this, I want to preface for anyone that is listening that I am not a native speaker of Arabic. I, I don't speak Arabic at all. In fact, I will get a number of names and different things wrong. So I do apologize. I saw criticism. Remember, Gabby, when we were looking at the reviews for it here of the podcast and it said, man, this guy apologizes too much for pronunciation. It gets annoying. Yeah, like I know that that happens and I will keep that in mind. So that is my one apology 
for it here in preparation for everything that happens. This should be the only time that I do so over the course of this episode, but I wanted to make it very clear from the beginning that there are likely to be many things that are not pronounced correctly. And I'm going to get so many messages about it. Like, I'm going to get so many messages about it already. But anyway, anyway, let's tell his story. Gabby, do you remember as much about Saladin last time? Like, I know we didn't go really in-depth on him. Just He was friends with the guy who was going to Crusade. And he's like, hey. And the guy was like, hey, I'm going to attack you. That's yeah. all I remember. <laughs> you know, oh, that's actually a great detail you remember for it here. Because, yes, that was the whole thing with uh, Frederick... Barbarossa it wasn't exactly a friendship I think it's more like acquaintances that were not going to fight each other and kind of willing to work together at different points Colleagues. which to, yes to be fair to be fair in the medieval world that is about as good as you could ever hope to get bars on the floor yeah the bars on the floor and you hope that when you bend to grab it that someone doesn't stab you in the rear and that was not a sexual innuendo that was with a blade because people were very likely to do that. Do you have any idea how many people have been killed on the toilet? Like a We did an entire podcast on that. I know. I know. If you haven't listened to that podcast episode, I highly recommend it because it's just dumb ways that people have died in history. And there are so many ways that people have died when they were literally on the toilet. Okay. So Saladin. Saladin was born in Tikrit or Tikrit in present day Iraq. And his personal name was actually Yusuf which is the Arabic version of, like, Joseph. So it was like Yusuf or Yosef. And so Saladin, or Saladin, is actually something called a lakab or an honorific epithet, or nickname. So, okay, because remember how, Gabby, we've covered people like um, William the Conqueror, Ethelred the Unready, Louis the Stammerer, etc. Like, th these names... Yeah. So that was the um that was the European equivalent. What it had Arabic Arabic was very common. Like essentially every big figure had some kind of epithet for it here. And Saladin's in this case, the Saladin, that meant righteousness of the faith. His family was of Kurdish descent, and his father was Ayub, and his uncle Shirka, they were elite military members under Imad al Din Zangi which was this really powerful ruler who governed northern Syria at the time. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember that name, actually. And I'm not going to ask because I, I know that I say a lot of names in a lot of places at a lot of different times. And it's also been a week, so a bunch of people have probably forgotten. But that name, Zangi, is actually really important because if you remember the initial crusader states that were established after the first crusade and the most northern one of that time was the state of Edessa. That one got conquered by the Muslims again and is one of the things that really started things on the path towards the Second Crusade. The guy who did that is Zangi. So Saladin's father specifically served him and his family. But before Zengi was fighting the Crusaders, he was fighting all these different fellow Muslims trying to establish his own power base during a succession crisis of the Caliphate. Because... I could go so in-depth about so much of the different history and different stuff they have here because people think of things in terms of religion where it's like, ah, the Crusades won because God was on their side. Ah, the Jihad won because God was on their side, etc. Like, like this kind of thing. But they really, people don't really seem to understand that one of the key reasons why these invasions tended to 
succeed or fail was not because of religion. It was because of the constant infighting in different groups. Like the Crusaders not working together at different points was one of the things that led to their downfall. And the Muslim forces, the reason why the Crusaders were able to take Jerusalem in the first place during the First Crusade is because the entire region was divided um, amongst like different little Muslim emirs and sheiks and different groups that were just fighting each other for regional control and power in the area. So Zangi was one of these guys who was trying to expand his power base against the different Muslims. And he was wanting to expand his own power base during that succession crisis that was going on in the caliphate. It, however, didn't go so well, at least not initially, because he tried to take over Baghdad in 1132 and just got crushed and was forced to retreat. However, when he was retreating, his army found that their retreat had been blocked by the Tigris River that was opposite of the fortress of Tikrit, where Saladin's father, Nam ad-Din Ayyub, actually served as the warden. And so when Ayyub provided ferries for the army and gave them refuge in Tikrit, Mujahid al-Din Biruz, who was a former Greek slave who had been appointed as the military governor of northern Mesopotamia for his service to the Seljuk Turks, this pissed him off. He was not happy because here was one of his men that was helping to protect essentially a foreign army that was in their area. It wasn't exactly foreign, but it was foreign because it was a local lord that this was a perfect opportunity to say wipe out a rival. But instead, Saladin's father actually helped him and reprimanded Ayub for giving Zengi refuge. Then a few years later in 1137, he actually banished Ayub from Tikrit after his brother, Assad al-Din Shirka killed one of his friends. Supposedly, that night that they were banished, then Saladin was actually born as they were leaving. And so in 1139, Ayub and his family moved to Mosul, where Imad al-Din Zengi was actually in charge. And Zengi, remembering what happened before when his army was trapped, acknowledged his debt and actually appointed Ayub as commander of his fortress in Balbek. So after the death of Zengi in 1146, his son, another name that we mentioned before of one of the great conquerors, Nur ad-Din, he became regent of Aleppo and the leader of the Zengids. And I, I have to preface that here before. So we talk, we're, we're going to talk about the dynasty that Saladin would establish, the Ayyubids. You had the Zengids. You had the Fatimids. You had all these different groups. They were different dynasties that were effectively trying to take control of different parts of the region. And so the Zengids during this time are, they're a very big, important regional power. So Saladin grew up in Damascus. And at the time, in comparison to the great warrior king that we think of, he was not like that at all. Do you know what his big love was? Like what he wanted to do? What did he want to do? Religion and garden like that was his big thing he was a poet he loved his gardens he loved religion like honestly why does he sound so cool because he was just a chill guy like that's what it was he didn't want to necessarily do anything with the military matters at least that's what according to the history is like what it says we don't necessarily know but this is the general consensus of the historians that were writing at the time in regards to his character he just wanted to plant his little plants Pretty much, he was just, Me too. he just wanted to chill. He just wanted to chill. Like, I'll say this right now, and this is the thing that we have to be cautious on when it comes to all sources, and this doesn't just apply to the Islamic sources, this applies to everything, but 
especially when you are looking at different things through the lens of religion and it comes to history books, they have a tendency to whitewash is not the right term for it. Or would it be? They have a tendency to glorify or glossify over different things and their calls to action and varying things. So when it comes to Saladin, a lot of stuff that he did later on is he would just employ artists and biographers and all these people to just write stuff about him as he was going, which is great because, I mean, we can get all of these resources that say what he did and what he was doing and why at the same time. These were being paid by the guy to write his story, which is what basically every European king did. Like, Gabby, if you were a scribe and you wanted to write a book, do you know how you wrote that book? Because shit was expensive. How'd you write that book? You wrote that book by getting sponsored by the king because you promised that you'd write something really awesome about him in it. Interesting. Can I get sponsored by the king? I mean, you probably could. Just don't end up like the naughty Bible or no, the wicked Bible that happened in... um. That that happened in England where the, the printing press, they put the wrong letters on. So when they had the Ten Commandments in the Bible, it said instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, it said thou shalt commit adultery and literally told people to um to to, to do that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of ways to really mess up royal patronage because people I'm getting so off topic. I'm, I'm you getting, really are. Like, you're really off topic. Also, I'm sure everyone just heard me hit my hand. So sorry about that. It's OK. I'm just talking about the wicked Bible and all this stuff after Saladin. So anyway, anyway, the create the reason why I bring all this up is because we know Saladin as the great warrior king of Islam during the medieval era but there is a real possibility considering what the biographies say that he may not have ever done that in the first place like in alternate history he potentially would have become a cleric and or just a scholar or a poet or something like that and just not done anything but nope he wanted he not wanted but he went on and became a military commander because he, he didn't want to, but I guess his uncle kind of made him. So his military career began under the tutelage of his uncle, Assad al-Din Shirka, who was the, this prominent military commander under Nur ad-Din and the Zengid Emir of Damascus and Aleppo and the most influential ruler and teacher of Saladin. So in 1163, the vizier to the Fatimid Caliph, which vizier, how, how should I explain this term for it here? I could do an entire thing on different government structures and that kind of thing. Think of a vizier as kind of like a prime minister slash governor, an appointed court official who governs or rules over a territory. It's effectively like a governor, but something that's more tied to a court of the ruler than is actually tied to, say, that individual province, if that makes sense. So the vizier was tied to the court, not the province. Yeah, like if, if you had a governor that you posted a governor to like a far out regional territory and that kind of thing, the governor was the governor of that territory. That's where they were. But a vizier, you could almost think of it as like a governor who was also stationed in the court so that they could keep like a closer eye. Like they were much more tied to the central government than ruling over a far flung territory. So my big thing is when you watch all of these shows, these like 
medieval show. I don't know. They live in castles with an entire court full of people. So the king never lives alone. The king lives in his castle with like all of his closest advisors and their yep. families. And it sounds yep. like the worst time ever. I mean, you pretty much had to. You've seen what happened Why with Versailles. Why did you have to? That is quite literally my nightmare. Like I have to live in that building with me and my closest friends and their children. First of all, I would not like to live in any house with more than like 10 children, probably more than two children, actually. And then also, have you met, like, listen, if you spend enough time with your friends, you're going to try to murder each other. So like, they're not protecting themselves by living together. In fact, they're probably going to get stabbed in the back. Listen, you make fair points, but the thing is, we're talking about the medieval world. So stabbing in the back is quite literally one of the most common occurrences that could possibly happen. And the reason why, remember that expression, like, Keep your friends close, put your enemies closer. Yeah. Like th that's pretty much what court politics were. So you had the court and a lot of your noble. This is the French perfected this. The French really perfected this when it came to like the palace of Versailles. You keep all of these super wealthy, influential nobles next to you and not off in their own provinces and territories where they potentially could ferment dissent and that kind of thing and potentially rise up because they're not within earshot of the king so potentially they're going off and trying to do their own thing so the goal of versailles was to bring as many people close to the king as they possibly could give them a bunch of useless stupidly expensive tasks that they had to do in order to earn the king's favor like for, for example one of the things that they did and oh my god I, I realized we could go into a whole podcast on versailles culture like dear god that's a whole thing so they would have to spend ludicrous amounts of money every single week getting new outfits. And in doing so, this would reduce the amount of money they had to potentially supply military forces to go after the king because they were wasting all of it on this stupidly expensive court stuff. Like, think about those people in high school that weren't actually wealthy, or maybe they were kind of wealthy, but they literally spent all of their money on the nicest shit and then when some emergency happens, they actually don't have the money to pay for it. That happened a lot in college, actually. Yeah. So think of it like that. A, a great example of one that did this, the shogun culture in Japan. Like when they did that during Edo era. So what they did is they had the regional daimyo and lords host these massive grand basically parades where they had to go in style marching from their castle with this huge entourage to go to the capital to pay homage to the shogun and because they had to do that literally all the time every time they went this meant that they would a spend lots of money on the way to get to the palace so they would help stimulate the local economy because they would be making this is where you saw all of these inns and all of these regional like hotels and stuff that were set up along the way because it stimulated the local economy to do it. And then simultaneously, because the lords were spending all of this money to travel, they literally couldn't spend it on their castle or military or anything to upgrade them. Interesting. Okay, I did not mean to derail. I was just... Oh my god, we, we've been on this for a while. But Mid and Middle Eastern courts work the same way where they've kept their enemies and friends close. Yeah, kind of. Essentially, everyone did that for it here. And there's a lot of intersectarian and ethnic politics that we're going to get into. Like, that, that's a whole reason why Saladin actually comes to power where he goes. And I'll explain. I'll explain. So the vizier of the Fatimid Caliph, 
Aladid Shawar had been driven out of Egypt by his rival Durgam, which was a member of the powerful Banu Rizaik tribe. Now, he asked for military backing from Nur ad-Din, who agreed to help, and then in 1164, he sent Shirka to aid Shawar in his expedition against Durgam. So Saladin, at the age of 26, then went along with them, and Shawar was successfully reinstated as vizier. His then next course of action was to demand that Shirka, the general that had just helped put him back into power, withdraw his forces from Egypt, and he agreed to pay him, or offered to pay him, rather, a sum of 30,000 gold pieces, essentially. But Shirka, he refused, insisting that it was the will of his lord, Nur ad-Din, that he remain. Essentially, it was um, it was an ultimatum of, no, I'm not leaving. We just put you in power. That means you now need to swear fealty to my lord. Like, th- th- that that's what's going on here. It was going to force him effectively to be a vassal under the caliph. That disagreement led to, um, what's the word? What's the word? A complete fallout. <laughs> And that caused Shawar to actually go and ally himself with the king of Jerusalem. So he reached out to the Christians to Alaric I to drive out the Zengids. And then what would follow was the Battle of Al-Babin and Saladin's first big taste of war under his uncle uh, Shirka in charge. So King Almeric had ordered only his mounted forces to chase Shirka and the Muslims out of Egypt at the beginning of the battle. And Almeric chased Shirka's troops all the way up the valley of the Nile, crossed the river to Giza, and the chase almost worked. But then the Muslims turned to fight Almeric, where the ground that they were on ended up as desert, essentially. So before it was farmland and it was all this territory that they could move very quickly on. But as soon as they got to the desert and the dunes, then all of those steep slopes and the soft sand, well, these are heavily armored knights on big war horses. So their effectiveness in this loose fitting ground that they couldn't really move up very effectively, it was greatly diminished. His army was weakened and he only took a handful of men with him in order to pursue Shurka in the first place. He commanded a total of 374 armed Frankish horsemen along with some mounted archers that were known as uh, Turkopoles, which I could do a whole thing on them too. Uh, sorry, sidetrack. Sorry, I know we're getting off a little topic for here. Turkopoles are local peoples. Like the Turks, people of the Levant, etc. That served in the Christian armies. Typically as like mercenaries or as levied forces. So they fought, you know, like in the Islamic style, we talk about this with the different Muslim forces that had mounted archers. And that was like a, a thing they had along with light cavalry. So the Turkopoles did that. Because the Crusader knights, they wouldn't fight like that. They didn't fight like the locals. So the Turkopoles helped to fulfill that kind of skirmisher light cavalry need that they had. And so those Christian knights who sided with Almeric I in order to go after uh, like Shurka's army, it didn't go well for them. Because Shurka came up with a new plan to draw the Franks along with Almeric away from the battlefield. His plan was for the Latin cavalry to charge and there to simply be nothing there for them to actually hit because he hoped to lessen the severity of the fight because these guys were 
I mean, to be fair, they were strong. And he did not want to fight them as much as he could. He wanted to wear them down. He wanted to th- the Franks to think that all of his best men were in the center surrounding him. And among those that he had in the center was Saladin, which was, again, his nephew. And so under Shurka's order, they were to retreat once the Franks moved closer. Hey, everyone. It's you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices... You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Can you guess from that what is about to happen? Battle? Battle. Well, specifically, the opposite of battle first, which, I mean, I guess I should have said that for here. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 what? Okay. Did they hug? The opposite of battle. I shouldn't so have they phrased all... it like that hugged and they sang songs I should <laughs> and then they told stories to each other and then they went to bed am I am I right D- no but it's my own damn fault for <laughs> phrasing like that they retreated they retreated see <laughs> the opposite of they, that yeah, they, I'm like god, god I know you're right I know you're right now that I'm thinking about it that was really dumb of me for how I phrased it but yes it's the opposite of battle for it here is retreat so Almeric fell for Shurka's plan. Almeric sent his main attack force towards the center of Shurka's troops, but then Saladin drew Almeric and the Franks away from the battlefield and broke off into all of these small skirmish groups, some of which were won by the Franks and others were won by the Turks, effectively. And so when Almeric returned from pursuing Saladin, he rallied his troops together and he lined them up and marched them straight through the enemy lines, fighting all enemy opposition along the way. He then marched off the battlefield with his army because the, 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 like, the, there was nothing. Like, neither side left with a victory. And that's going to cause some contention because I know we're going to get some... I know we're going to get some Muslims who are going to go in here and they're going to cite a couple of the scholars who who literally wrote down that Saladin won the greatest victory ever. I, I kid you not, Gabby, that is that is legit one of the things that was written, that it's like one of the greatest victories ever, but it's really not. If anything, all of this was effectively like a, it, it was pretty much a stalemate. But, but a stalemate is still good in this sense because by having a stalemate, this meant that like Almeric, when he had returned, there was there was no victory for him to have. He couldn't actually secure Egypt and become its ruler because he couldn't get a victory. And because he was so far away from home and his supply lines were stretched thin, this meant that he had to turn back. So it worked. It worked? Yeah, it, it, it worked. So Saladin and Shirka then moved towards Alexandria where their army is welcomed and they're given money, they're given weapons, they're provided with a base... And they're going to need that because now in Egypt, there is a three-way power struggle going on between Shawar, Shirka, and Almeric. And it's, it's not going to really end up pretty for the majority of them. So in 1169, 
Shawar was reportedly assassinated by Saladin. And then shortly after, a year later, Shirka died. And so after Shirka's death, Saladin was actually chosen to succeed him in command of Nur ad-Din's forces in Egypt. And he was appointed vizier of the crumbling Fatimid Caliphate, which ruled Egypt at the time. With the death of the last Fatimid Caliph in 1171, Saladin became the governor of Egypt, and he set about reducing the power and influence of Shia Islam and reestablishing a Sunni regime there. Governing in the name of Nur ad-Din, he strengthened Egypt as a base of Sunni power in the Near East. And that, that is actually really important. That is really important because it demonstrates the divisions of the time that riddle the Muslim world. All of this. So Saladin, as a Sunni, had been appointed to the position of power by a Shia lord. Something that that is debated very heavily as to why. But that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. For those of you who are not aware, just as Europe faced a bunch of religious battles and wars between like Catholics and Protestants for centuries, so too did the Islamic world, but it was racked with warfare between Sunnis and Shias for over a millennia. Like we're talking over like 1,400 years. I won't go in depth about it here, but I am going to try and explain it so that people listening can kind of understand what I'm talking about when I refer to these two groups. Because it is important, and it is one of those things that helps people to kind of understand the differences from the religious groups today, where there is still a lot of literally the same fighting. Like, like Gabby, Gabby, you've, you've seen a lot of the sectarian violence that goes on in the Middle East right now? Yeah. So a lot of that is specifically Sunni versus Shia. And the roots of that divide can be traced all the way back to the 7th century because soon after the death of the prophet Muhammad in AD 632, while most of the Muhammad's followers thought that the other elite members of the Islamic community should choose his successor, a smaller group believed that only someone from Muhammad's family, specifically his own cousin slash son-in-law, Ali, should succeed him. This group became known as the followers of Ali, in Arabic, the Shiat Ali, or simply Shia, or Shiite. That, that, that's where it comes from. And the essence of the problem is that Muhammad died without a male heir, and he never clearly stated who he would want to be his successor. And that was very important because by the time that he died, he had basically brought in all the different tribes of Arabia together into a kind of confederation that became the Ummah, the people or the nation of Islam. Like it was, they, they were one people, they were one group. It was no longer the separate tribes. And eventually, the Sunni majority, named for Sunnah or tradition, they won. And they chose Muhammad's close friend, Abu Bakr, in order to become the first caliph or leader of the Islamic community. Ali eventually did become the fourth caliph or imam, as the Shiites call their leaders, but only after the two that preceded himself, like preceded him, had been assassinated. Ali himself was actually killed in 661 as the bitter power struggle between Sunni and Shia continued. Because you might think is it, it's just religion, but it, it's not just that. Because what was at stake was not just Muhammad's religious and political legacy, but also a ton of money in the form of taxes tributes and glory there was there was a lot to be earned everywhere under the banner of islam 
And that combination of money and power and religious tension, that would only grow. Because within the century after Muhammad's death, his followers had built an empire that stretched from Central Asia all the way over to Spain. And to rule a land that vast, that wide, with such rich trade networks. Oh, now that was, that was, that was wealthy. That, that was, that was a grand prize. As you can imagine, the competition between those two groups, that is going to be really fierce. So anyway, I, I kind of detracted from there, but I wanted to explain the background. After a protracted power struggle between Shirka and Shawar for control of Egypt, Saladin then ordered the assassination of Shawar in 1169. As I said, Shirka then later dies, and a number of candidates were considered to be appointed to the viziership, and most of these were of Kurdish origin. The fact that Saladin was also of Kurdish origin helped him to be chosen because they they think that one of the reasons they did this, despite the fact that Saladin was Sunni, was that because he was Kurdish, the the Ayyubids were they didn't want to put more Turks in there that potentially could have greater influence for dynastic politics. They thought that with the Saladin being so young, him having all these great military victories, he thought that he would be impressionable, effectively. So Aladid really thought that Saladin might be someone that could be manipulated, it seems. But holy crap, was he going to be wrong? Because, How wrong? Well, let, let's get into that. Saladin was inaugurated as a vizier on the 26th of March in 1169. And in October, he then faced a crusader Byzantine force near, uh, near Demetia, or Demetia, I think, with reinforcements from Nur ad-Din. King Almeric I of Jerusalem had realized that an alliance between Nur ad-Din of Syria and Aladid of Egypt would be a disaster for the crusader states. And so he did seek allies in attacking Egypt into submission. Byzantine Emperor Manuel I Komnenos had agreed to help when they attacked the city, but Saladin quickly placed an iron chain across the city's branch of the Nile, which prevented the Crusader Byzantine fleet from blockading the city. Like, they just couldn't get in and put a stop to things. So the attackers attempted then to besiege the city, but the poor weather like weather and heavy rain also made this difficult, and they withdrew in December. The clash then ended the main external threat to Saladin's position in Egypt, and he won. A year later, Saladin's father would join him in Egypt in his attempt to depose Aladid and establish himself as the only authority in Egypt. He acted very strategically in this regard. He forged some good political connections. He appointed members of his own family to a lot of positions of power. And that right there is key because you're in a region there in Egypt where he's effectively a stranger in these lands. And the the people that are under him he doesn't have necessarily any confirmed loyalty. So he goes and gets a bunch of members of his family and he appoints them to positions of power in order to secure them to him. And so Saladin, who is part of the Abbasid dynasty, he worked to gradually dismantle the Fatimids of Egypt under Al-Adid, who had essentially become a puppet ruler. He purged Fatimid royalists from the army. He abolished Shiite Islam in favor of Sunni. And then in September of 1171, he proclaimed an official Abbasid vassalage or suzerainty, and Al-Adid, who had been in place under house arrest, just died a few days later. Now, 
Saladin was at this point a very well-established ruler in Egypt, and he could turn his attention to the external threats from the Crusaders. So his lord from before, Nur al-Din, he died in 1174, and Saladin then launched a campaign to take control of all of those lands that he had ruled. He, he sought to establish his regime as the major military player that was going to be capable of challenging the four crusader states, which were established after the first crusade that we talked about earlier. And as sultan of Egypt, he returned to Syria and managed to capture Damascus, Aleppo, and Mosul, all from the other Muslim rulers, essentially trying to bind as many of them to him as he possibly could. He took over Yemen, that enabled him to consolidate control over the entire Red Sea, and then in addition to his military exploits, he also did some amazing diplomacy. He he married uh, a woman by the name of Nur, uh, or no, wait, what was her name? Shoot, I actually can't remember. I had it on here and I forgot. He Essentially, he married Nur ad-Din's widow. There was Ismat, that was the name. So he married Ismat, that was Nur ad-Din's widow, which was also the daughter of the late Damascan ruler. And that helped him to gain legitimacy because through him, he was binding two dynasties together to himself. And so he gained lots of widespread support among different Muslims because he proclaimed himself as the leader of jihad or the holy war, dedicating itself to defending Islam against Christianity. Now, his goal was to unite the Muslim territories of Syria, northern Mesopotamia, Palestine, Egypt, all of this under his rule. And by 1186, he did all of that. He had done all of that through this mixture of diplomacy and military force. But remember how we um, remember how we talked about how much uh, a non-history, not history, military, non-military buff he was in the beginning? Yes. So the, he, he was still the same guy. He loved poetry. He loved gardens. He loved all this. He gained this huge reputation as someone who was really generous and really noble, which, as I said before, was really helped along by the official biographers that he hired in order to record his feats. Yes, but what is the but? No, nothing. Just the man knew how to appeal to people. Like, all I was saying earlier was that he, he really knew how to make a legacy. I guess like he knew how to position himself both politically, strategically, militarily, everything so that people usually loved him like he knew how to appeal to people. And so after nearly a decade of fighting all these small battles against the Franks and different Muslim powers, etc., Saladin was finally prepared to launch his full scale attack in 1187 by assembling troops from across his realm south of Damascus and a very impressive Egyptian fleet at Alexandria. His army then met the Franks at the decisive clash of Hattin near Tiberias, or modern-day Israel, and defeated them soundly on July 4th, 1887, which we covered that one last time. We also covered it before, if you want the full details on that, uh, during the, what was it? It was the Military Disasters podcast that we did as a Patreon exclusive. It was a exclusive. Patreon exclusive. Yes, yes. So we did that one as a Patreon exclusive. So if you want to hear more about that one, you all will need to uh, to subscribe. Yeah, join us on Patreon. It's only a dollar a month. Shameless plug time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this battle, Saladin faced the combined forces of Guy of Lusignan, who was the king of Jerusalem, and Raymond III of Tripoli. Now, the Crusader armies were 
annihilated. And Guy was taken prisoner along with Renault. And the two men were then taken into Saladin's tent, where Saladin offered Guy a goblet of water as a sign of generosity. Because if you remember the whole detail, they hadn't had water in like two days. Like it was a really big thing. The offer also signified that he was going to spare his life. And he, there's this famous quote that he reportedly stated, which was, a king does not kill a king. Acknowledging him for his nobility and the, how he would treat him. But nevertheless, that was not the case for Renald, whom Saladin immediately had beheaded with his sword for attacking pilgrims, which was Saladin's justification in the first place for going to war. This Renald guy was raiding, uh, he was raiding pilgrims and uh, merchants, uh, like Muslim merchants and everything in here. And that's one of the things that led the Muslim forces to going after him in the first place. Okay, that's fair. I mean, it, it was a, it's a fair point considering what was happening because the guy was an oath breaker. He really was. So Guy was imprisoned in Damascus while Saladin finally conquered Jerusalem on the 2nd of October, 1187, ending 88 years of crusader rule in the city. Guy was then released in 1188, and he, along with his wife, sought refuge in Tyre, which was the only city that was still remaining at that point in Christian hands, and is the start of the Third Crusade. Saladin then actually allowed the Jewish population to resettle back into the city after they had been expelled by the Christians. And the residents of Ashkelon, for example, they, they were so happy to do this. The Christians in the city were allowed to leave if they paid a fee. And in the wake of Saladin's capture of Jerusalem, Pope Gregory then called for a new crusade in order to recapture the city. In 1189, those Christian forces would mobilize at Tyre in order to launch the Third Crusade, which was led by, as you remember, Frederick Barbarossa, King Philip II of France, and Richard the Lionheart. So to recap, we're, we're just going to give a kind of quick little thing here that establishes it here, because if you want to know more about the full crusade, you need to listen to the previous episode. If you did and you're listening to this, awesome. But as a recap, the Crusaders laid siege to Acre. They captured it in 1191, along with a large part of Saladin's navy. But despite the military power of the Crusader forces and doing so well, it seemed Saladin did withstand their onslaught and he managed to retain control of most of his empire. The Crusaders had reached the gates of Jerusalem itself, but they had no supplies and were stretched way too thin and had to turn around. They then established a truce with Richard the Lionheart in late 1192 and ended the Third Crusade. And that that's actually the end of Saladin. Do you know why? Why? Because just a few months later, in March of 1193, shortly, ever so shortly after establishing this truce, Saladin would die in his beloved gardens in Damascus. Though he was relatively young. At the age, at that time, he was pretty much only about 55 or 56. Like he Did wasn't he get stung old. by a bee? Doesn't seem so. Oh, well, how did he die? It just seems that he was exhausted. Like, he actually died of old age. I mean, I want you to imagine this. That makes me so sad. He, he, he was exhausted. He spent his entire life in almost constant military campaigns uniting this empire under him. And by the time of his death, he actually gave away almost all of his wealth. Like, all of his gold, everything, all of his belongings. He gave all of it to his subjects, leaving behind not even enough money to pay for his own funeral. Why? Because he was a man who believed very firmly in charity. And so he gave in his death everything. 
Okay, why was he actually like one of the coolest people we learned about? Like, he, he, literally, he, on this podcast. Gabby, Saladin is like, how should I put this? So when you think of like the ideas in the West of, oh, King Arthur and the knights and like this great sense of nobility and honor and like everything that is attributed to them and that kind of thing, Saladin is arguably the Islamic version of that. Interesting. At least Sunni. The Shias, there, there is some hatred there. Remember the whole sectarian violence kind of thing here. But for the majority of Muslims, Saladin is the epitome of awesome. Like, he, he is the, the true of noble. awesome. Basically. I'm not even kidding. So, now, the, the unfortunate thing for him is remember how he had conquered all of that territory? So the coalition of Muslim states that he had pulled together and conquered for an empire, it would fall apart very shortly after his death. But at the very least, his descendants of the Ayyubid dynasty they would continue to rule Egypt and Syria for several generations more. So he still had a legacy, and he is still honored to this day. But, unfortunately, he just, if he had stayed alive just a few more years, perhaps he could have consolidated and made something even better. And that is the end of Saladin. Literally. Yeah. Phrasing. Yeah, well, honestly, among all the different ones that we've covered, you got to think. Look at all the badasses of history that we've covered. Like for the ones that, um, why why can I not remember her name? Wait, it's drawing a blank on me for it here. The uh, the Serbian Milanka. Uh, Milanka, yes, she is an insanely awesome badass. But her story ends with her being, you know, dirt poor and dying after a stroke. Yeah, it, like it's the ends of a lot of people are not necessarily pretty ones. Saladin is arguably one of the most honorable and great ones that you could have. Like it, it's it's a death and a resolution that is fitting for everything that he did. Anyway, that is the end of today's episode. We are going to return this next week with the fourth crusade and keep in mind remember all if you want to get early access to pay, uh, to podcast episodes then please do join us on patreon it costs a dollar a month to be a subscriber for it and what ends up happening is you get four additional episodes per month at a minimum where it's one additional episode per week every friday and then on top of that uh you of course are going to get early access to everything that we release so i will see you all here next time Thank you so much for joining me, and I will see you next time, my host. Goodbye, guys. Bye.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.